Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Isaiah chapter 9 is where I want you. Isaiah chapter 9. We've been in this series called A Light Has Dawned for the last three weeks. This is our last time in it together going through Isaiah 9 chapters 1 or chapter 9 verses 1 through 7. So if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back right in front of you. If you don't own one, don't leave today without one. We've got plenty that are free. It's called a gift in the season of giving. With that, I want to kick us off this morning by doing a little social experiment, if we could, for a minute. I'm going to ask a question, and this does require a verbal response from you all. And this is the question, what's the absolute worst gift that you've ever received for Christmas? Warning! If the person who gave it to you is sitting to your left or to your right, I ask that you would use your Fifth Amendment right so that you could have a ride home and a bed to sleep in tonight. Go ahead. Worst gift you've ever received for Christmas. Huh? An old shirt. A used shirt? Man. Okay, what else? An acorn necklace. Wow, squirrels gave it to you. Okay, who else? What else we got? Worst gift you've ever received. A broom. You know, so that comes with a message too, right? That's not just, uh, hey, here's something I want to get. There's something that's needed in your life, right? They're trying to communicate. Kind of like bless your heart, right? Okay. So uh, I honestly have been racking my brain for an answer to that question in my own life. I can't think of one, but I'm anticipating one. Uh, there's, there is coming a day where I will receive the absolute worst, terrible gift that uh, I could ever receive in my life. And you know what it is? Um, head wax for balding men. I'm not, listen, I'm not dissing you who are bald and utilize that. I, 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 hey, I, I'm going to be joining you sooner than I want. Uh, I, I will be there. I'm, I'll just go ahead and show you. It's going to be a lot. So I'm only 31 and this is happening. So either my job or my kids are really stressful. Okay? But... I think sooner or later I'm going to be rocking what I call the cul-de-sac. Have you seen those hairstyles? I don't know if it's called that, but I call it that. It's where you go down and you have to come back because there's hair around and there's no way to get around. It's Anyways, I'm going to be there and I'm going to, I'm going to embrace it wholeheartedly. So if one of you gives me head wax for bald men next year, I'm, I'm going to, mm. we're going to have problems. So it's not Christmas yet. Oh, man, it's coming. All right. So uh, there's a running joke in my own family about really bad gifts received. Uh, one time, uh, one year, my late grandfather gave my grandmother, his wife, who was 70, late 70 year old at the time, gave her uh, what is what's called inversion boots. You know what those are? Those are those things that you see are like their medical remedy for back problems where you're supposed to put it up in a door jam and you're somehow supposed to get your feet into it and hang upside down and it'll relieve your back stress for my grandma. So, like, we, we, uh, of course, picture grandma hanging upside down as you walk into that. Oh, hey, grandma, right? It's ridiculous. a terrible gift, and so we joke about it all the time, um, but obviously she never did use them, uh, needless to say. But, but we've received some pretty terrible gifts in our day, haven't we? We've also received some really good gifts. I'm sure you can think of one or two where you've been like, man, this is one of the best gifts I've ever 
could have received. I, I can tell you, for me personally, one of the best gifts I've ever received for Christmas my whole life was a love song that my wife wrote me. Um, if you want to see it, you can go on my Facebook page. It's there. It's an incredible song of love. Anyways, so with that, um, if you can't think of a best gift that you've ever received, what I want to tell you right now is that we're about to study a passage that's going to remind you of one of the best gifts that we've ever been able to receive that's going to pale, that's going to surpass every gift that we could have ever imagined to receive in value and worth. It's going to be amazing. So uh, let, me, let me just go ahead and, and get to that, right? Let's get to that gift in Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to start reading back in verse 1 because some of you are new, haven't been reading with us the whole time. So let's start back in verse 1 of chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Christmas, right? No, so if you don't know what any of that means, it's all online. Go study it there. You can listen to the sermons that we've got. But here's our main verse for the day. Pick it up in verse six. For a child will be born for us a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So do you see the culmination of it all? Can you, can you see where we're at? We're clearly at the climax, the pinnacle of this whole royal birth announcement, of this whole passage, right? So in verse 1, we heard that this promised one, this Emmanuel, this God with us, born of a virgin, described back in chapter 7, that he would here redeem and make glorious a land that was corrupted, abused, and impoverished. In verse 2, we, we heard that this promised one, he's going to be a light to shine in the darkest places, that he was going to reveal or show to us the reality of who God is, the reality of who we are, and the reality of the world around us. And then we saw in verses 3 through 5, we saw that he's going to multiply his kingdom He's going to exponentially increase that kingdom's joy through a stunning victory, completely decimating his people's oppressors and rescuing them out of oppression. This is what he would do. This is what this coming one would do. And yet, who is this hope of redemption? Who is this loving light of revelation? Who is this joy-multiplying, oppression-obliterating victor? What do we see here? Who is he? He's a child. A child? Did we just, wait, we read that right? Sorry. Did we? A young boy's gonna be our champion? A tender child. 
You remember, you remember last week how we studied the day of Midian? All right. Remember how uh, in Midian there, were, uh, there was an army of 135,000 just totally destroyed, defeated by Gideon and his meager 300. Doesn't God like to use the weak to shame the strong? Isn't that what he loves to do? So we see here that this tender child is going to miraculously do incredible things. So what God is doing here in this passage is describing the nature and the character of this coming one, of this person of who he's promising to send. In other words, God is, in verses six and seven, describing the Messiah and his empire. He's describing the royal himself and his reign. He's describing the king and his kingdom. In fact, that's how we're going to kind of split up this whole study this morning into those two parts. We have our first part, which is the king, and we have our second part, which is his kingdom, right? The king and the kingdom. So let's first look at the nature of this king. We see it in verse 6. It says, For us, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. So a child born, a son given. We've got two phrases there. The first phrase, in that we see the humanity of this one. Right? We see that he's a child. Right? He's a baby boy born. So what? A lot of us have baby baby boy born all the time, right? Like, what's going to be so significant about this one? What's so special? Well, it's the fact that he's not just a child born. In his birth, he's a son that's been given to us as a gift. And it makes it radically different. He's a son given. So, so not only do we see the humanity of this son, but we also see the deity of this one, the king, given to his father's people. So we already can see here that this Messiah is going to be both human and divine, that he's going to be both natural and supernatural. Son of man, son of God. I mean, this is God really announcing to the world what we theologically call the incarnation, right? The incarnation, God becoming man, given to us for us to redeem brokenness, to shine his light, right? To demolish the oppression of our enemies. This is, this is what Paul speaks about in Philippians chapter 2. You can see it up on the screen in just a second. It says, Philippians 2, verse 6 or 7, Through, uh, though Jesus Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the reality of the incarnation being prophesied years before it happened. And guys, this is the best gift that we could have ever received. In fact, this is the highest understanding of God's grace, Right? What do we think of when we think of the word grace? We, we often define it as unmerited favor, right? A free gift, undeservingly given. Well, sure, but there's something even higher than that when we understand of God's grace. When we think about God's grace, in reality, the chief expression of it is God's freely giving of himself. God freely giving of himself, that's what he gives to us. This is the culmination of his grace. It's the best gift that we could ever receive. God himself, supremely infinitely better than inversion boots or an acorn necklace. Next, we find out something about this one. He's not just son of man, son of God. He's also destined to be king, destined to rule. Look at verse six. And the government will be on his shoulder. Like, why does God have to go here? Why does he have to go to politics 
Some of y'all, we don't like talking about politics. Some of you love talking about politics. In fact, that's all you want to talk about, right? Why does he want to do it here? Why does this child have a government and why is it on his shoulder? Well, let me, let me try to set the background. At every moment in history, after Genesis 3, all of humanity has been operating from a place of weakness and brokenness. It's never been perfect since then. Never perfection, never utopian. Guys, we create things and they fail. Don't believe me? Go check out the sunroom that I'm trying to renovate in our house. It's failing. We create systems and they end up being corrupted. We, we create laws to try to promote justice and then those laws are used unjustly. We put people into positions of power and they never are good enough and become corrupted by that power. Because every governmental system that mankind ever has created has failed. Every empire that rises eventually falls because no form of man-made government has ever been perfect. But God knows we need it, doesn't he? We, we need organization. We need order around us and in us or else all the world and all of our souls would just fall into utter chaos, anarchy, and destruction. Guys, you know, you know the people of Israel were just, they were way too familiar with that concept. Guys, they had kings that were tyrants. Israel had kings that were terrible. They also had kings that were godly, and yet none of them were perfect. Even King David, you know that, that guy who's, who's said to be a, a man after God's own heart? He messed up so badly it cost people 70,000 lives. It cost the kingdom 70,000 lives because of his mess up. But not only this, several times Israel has been invaded and, 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 and other nations have conquered and, and exiled them off into slavery and they've been ruled over by other kings who themselves thinks they are God. In fact, in this very moment right here in Isaiah chapter nine in Israel's history, as God is announcing this to them, there were nations that were on their way to invade Israel and to overthrow them, and their king couldn't protect them. So in a time when the world, when Israel was weary and despairing of political solutions, when the political future looks really bleak, this right here is most welcome news. Over 100 years before Israel was taken off into Babylonian captivity, Isaiah here is looking at a litany of failed monarchs currently sitting in the rubble of Israel's monarchy and is directing our eyes to a time when God himself would rule on earth through his own son. As God is telling us that this coming Messiah would be a royal that he belonged in positions of leadership because of his nature. In other words, this child's nature is to be a king. It's inherent to who he is. He's going to be a king and he's going to bring a kingdom. He's going to bring an earthly geopolitical kingdom that encompasses all the kingdoms and all the governments of the world. 
Imagine being king over all the world and all the people in the world. It'd be a pretty heavy weight, don't you think? Which is why he has shoulders broad enough to bear it. This royal Messiah has shoulders that can bear the weight of ruling over all the earth. Guys, prior kings have failed in this, but this, this king won't fail. Because of who he is. In fact, that's what, that's what we find out next in this verse. We find out just exactly his character. We find out his nature. Look at verse six. It says, he will be named, or he will be called. Remember how we studied Exodus 34 and and Moses asks to see the glory of the Lord, and God says, I'll let you see my glory, and really it's a proclamation of his name and his character. That's because a person's name was symbolic of their character or of their nature. And so these aren't just titles to refer to him as. They are descriptions of his very nature. And what we find here are eight different words that are grouped into four pairs, or four, fours, uh, four pairs of two, right? Four names further explaining what this Messiah would be like. So let's go through them real quick. First, he's going to be what? What does it say he will be? A wonderful counselor. Does this mean he's just going to be a delightful therapist? Maybe an overqualified psychologist? Nah. Now, the word wonderful here means the ability to work supernatural signs or miracles. Just like God worked wonders in Egypt to set Israel free. So he's a, a miracle-working Messiah, but he's also a counselor. And the counselor here refers to the giving of wise advice, like advisors to a king would. So this Messiah would minister to people in a way where both miraculous works were just the routine, and teaching wisdom and truth was just foundational to his ministry. Sounds pretty familiar, right? So he's a wonderful counselor. And then it says what? He's a mighty God. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Guys, uh, there's people who say that Scripture never says that Jesus is the Messiah or that he is God incarnate. I can't think of a better passage that would just slap those people across the face. Mighty God. This is Hebrew, El Gabor, right? It's, this is the Messiah who is the mighty God himself. The word mighty, uh, ironically enough, is, is often used in the Old Testament to describe powerful warriors who would carry the day in battle, right? Incredible people who would take weapons from their enemy and use those weapons to slay them, right? Individuals who could defeat lions and bears with their own hands. People, mighty warriors who could take on 800 enemies with just a spear or 1,000 with a jawbone of a donkey. Huh. That's pretty mighty, don't you think? But obviously we know God's power is infinitely greater than this, right? Much stronger. Guys, he can wipe out armies 135,000 strong. He can lay waste to entire empires. He makes the earth melt with his voice. Huh. And he ends wars. Guys, no one can stand against our warrior God. This mighty warrior God would come in the form of this baby boy. We get what next? So we have wonderful counselor, 
mighty God. Then what's after that? What does he say? Everlasting Father or eternal Father. When we think of Father, don't think of the word in the context of the Trinity. Think of it in the relationship that you and I are most familiar with. Family relation. This means that this coming royal would be a king whose rule looks more like the rule of a gentle father than it does of a harsh dictator tyrant. And then add to that the concept that this royal father-like ruler would rule for eternity, that this would define his character for eternity, meaning from eternity past to eternity eternity future, that he is self-sufficient and self-existent, all of this coming to pass, and you've got God promising to rule his people as a gentle father for the rest of eternity in this Messiah. And then finally we get to the fourth pair, and it's what? That he is the prince of peace. As this Messiah is promised to be one whose government reign will be marked by shalom, peace. As peace implies the absence of conflict, it implies the end of wars, the ceasing of all uprising. So this Messiah's invasion is the only one of its kind where true peace will absolutely and perfectly be established. So, this is the nature of this Emmanuel. This is the nature of this king, right? He's a a God-man king, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Huh. Guys, I gotta tell you, it's, it's, it's a good thing to hear these words sung over a very powerful overture, It's another thing when they become realized in actuality in your heart. It's far better. So we just saw in verse 6 what this coming royal king was going to be like. What his nature is. But what does his kingdom look like? That's where we get to our second part for the morning. We had the king and now we have the kingdom. Let's read verse 7 again. It says this. The dominion will be vast. That word dominion is the government word that we saw in verse 6. It's the same word there. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness. From now on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So real quick, there's three characteristics of the nature of this kingdom that I see here. First, it's unstoppable. Second, it's righteous. And third, it's guaranteed. Let me talk to you about those three. First, the nature of this kingdom is that it's unstoppable. He says in verse 7 that, that this government and the kind of peace that characterizes this government, it's going to increase. It's going to be vast. And its increase will never Stop. It'll never end. In other words, this growing kingdom can't stop and won't stop. Wherever this king seeks to expand the reach of his kingdom and domain, peace and prosperity, any opposing force will just crumble at the weight of his power. Guys, I I think right now we live in in a season in American Christianity where we think Christianity is on the fall where we think our faith 
is declining around the world because we look at what's happening in America and we copy and paste that to the whole world. Guys, we aren't the world. The world doesn't revolve around America. The church is rapidly expanding all around the world. It's because they've reached the next generation. It's because they've held fast to truth. And it's also because they've taken seriously their mission. Guys, the church is rapidly expanding in some of the most harshest, hostile places the world has ever seen. Iran, Afghanistan, China. Guys, the church is rapidly growing. Nothing is stopping God's kingdom from advancing. So don't believe the hype. This kingdom really is unstoppable. And it's going to increase forevermore. So it's unstoppable. And we also see that this kingdom is a righteous kingdom. In other words, it's put in place and it's supported by justice and righteousness. Don't don't you think that we need that more than ever in our governmental systems? True justice and righteousness reigning morality, true morality, what's good and what's not. This kingdom is going to be a righteous kingdom. It's perfectly reflecting the character of its king. Which means every form of injustice will receive perfect justice that's due. Where every law that's put into place will be guided by perfect morality and will not fail. So this kingdom, it's It's unstoppable. It is righteous. And you know what else this passage tells us about the nature of this kingdom? It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. Establishing, supporting, and increasing this government comes with a guarantee that you've never seen before. Look at the end of verse 7. It says, The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Huh. Guys, think about that. Have you ever heard that before? Did, did we, uh, let, me, let me ask this. Did we hear that in Genesis 1 when God spoke millions of galaxies into existence and threw billions of stars all across space? Did, did we see that it was the zeal of God that did that? No, what was it? His word. His breath. Just his Just his word. Well, what about when God split the Red Sea for the Israelites to walk through on dry ground? Was that, was that his zeal? No, it was his breath again. Just, just his, whew. that's it. No enthusiasm, no storing up of strength, just his breath. What is it then that awakens the zeal of our God and King. It's his kingdom. It's his, his kingdom, his royal kingdom. You know, you know how you can judge someone's passion? Two things. How long it's been on their heart and the lengths to which they're willing to go to accomplish it. How long has it been on God's heart to establish his kingdom here on earth? Eternity past. What lengths was he willing to go to accomplish that purpose? The cross. 
as God's plan to send this promised royal Messiah into the world that he created full of corrupt people rebelling against him to demolish the dominion of their oppressors so that he could have citizens in his royal kingdom under the reign of his son as their king, experiencing his lavish grace, his peace, his rule, and his reign forever. That's what awakens the passionate heart of our God, that kingdom. So then it must be guaranteed. I don't care what Walmart says. It thinks it has the best guarantee to offer. No, this is the guarantee of eternity. This king and his kingdom. So, brothers and sisters, we've just gone through Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. The royal birth announcement of God. We've seen so much that God is promising to do in a context of really dark places. And suffering. And despair. And this was written hundreds of years before the turn of the century. Who does all of this culminate in? What is his name? Jesus. In who do we see the promise of this king and this kingdom realized? We see it in Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem to a virgin mother and a human father, son of God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, whose birth was the invasion of heaven on earth, whose breath healed the sick and raised the dead and uttered truth in all that he said, who went undefeated against the kingdom of darkness and no enemy could rise against, who loved the world with tenderness for an eternity, whose very presence ushered in permanent and perfect peace, offered to weary souls in a chaotic world, an infinitely better king than King David, destined to rule from birth, who came proclaiming the kingdom had come, and any who came through him alone could be rescued out of the oppression of deadly darkness and become children of light, citizens of heaven, promising a vast and unstoppable prosperity now and for all eternity, birthed and sustained in the heart of his father. This is all about Jesus. This is Christmas. And it's not just Christmas, friends. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the kingdom. Simply put, this will not be miraculously or transformatively a, a new truth for you, but goodness, Jesus is the reigning king now and forevermore. Guys, Jesus is the realization of this whole passage, right? And his zeal for his father's kingdom will one day mean that our praying for, for your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven will one day come to pass. It will be true. It will come to pass. It will happen because it's on the, the heart of our father. Jesus really is the reigning king. Amen? Sorry, I spit all over my Bible. I'd rather do it while preaching. Um, so here's, 
here's uh, how I believe the Lord convicted my heart with all of this and, and how we can, we can land it today. Um, and it's something that I've become increasingly convinced of as I've, as I've studied this as a narrative, as a story uh, written by God. Um, and, and, and so let me, let me just start off by saying this. There's a way that we can water down the gospel that we preach here in this pulpit and that we preach to a lost people if all that we communicate to them is that Jesus came to forgive sins. Now before you start calling me a heretic and throwing tomatoes and celery and lettuce at me, let me try to explain what I mean. The sinful condition of humanity and the forgiveness of our sin through Jesus' atoning sacrifice and resurrection, that lies at the very heart of the gospel that we believe and the gospel that we preach. Without that, we would have nothing and we would be of most of all people to be pitied. Don't get me wrong. But the way we evangelize, the way we preach this gospel starts out by saying that we are sinners in need of saving. And, and culturally speaking, I don't know if you've noticed this, but culturally, currently, people are thinking that they're needing saving from the idea that they need saving. That's what people want most right now around us. They don't want to hear that they need saving, that they need rescue. That's not currently relevant anymore for them. They want to be saved from the idea that they need saving. But when we start proclaiming our gospel with the truth that you're a sinner in need of rescue, we're starting our gospel in Genesis 3. With the fall of creation due to the rebellion of humanity. But does, does the story start with Genesis 3? No, there's Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, we hear a story about a perfect king who created a perfect world and dwelt with his creation. Where he designed everything to be unto his glory and it never failed. And he created the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman, humankind, and he was with them. And he ruled them and shared his rule with them. As our gospel doesn't start in Genesis 3, it starts in Genesis 1 in the kingdom. It starts with us realizing that we were created to be with God to dwell with him, to enjoy him. That's what the Westminster Shorter Catechism starts with, right? What is the chief end of man? What's our purpose? I'd say the answer is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. We were made to be with God. We were made to live as citizens in this kingdom. That's where Genesis starts us off. Walking with God in the cool of the day. 
As our gospel starts there in a close relationship with the king. Genesis 3 describes how we uh, exalted ourselves above the true king and thought we'd be better off in that position, only to find out that we were gravely mistaken and our sin and rebellion against this king and his kingdom meant that we lost his rule and reign. Not because he took it away, but because we left it. We were too sinful. And then the rest of Scripture is describing the lengths to which this king has gone at great cost to himself to bring us back into his kingdom through the forgiveness of sins. So, brothers and sisters, absolutely, the advent of Jesus is the arrival of a perfect sacrifice made for sin on our behalf. But if that's all that we think Advent is, then boy, do we have a low view of our God. Advent is not just the arrival of a sacrifice for sin. It is, but it's also the dawning of his reign, reestablished here on earth. Brothers and sisters, our, our gospel isn't merely transactional. It's not. What I mean by that is you don't have to transact with, uh, uh, oh, I believe, and then you get forgiveness, right? If, 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 if we reduce the gospel to that, then we're missing it. And if, if, if the questions that we ask is, what is the bare minimum that I need to do to be saved? Then you've missed the heart of God in all of this. Now, that's an important question, and we can answer that in another context. But goodness, our gospel is not just transactional. The fullness of our gospel is the arrival of a perfect ruler come to reign and establish his kingdom forevermore. And he's inviting us in to enjoy his reign. Forevermore. The good news of our gospel is of the king and his kingdom. But know, nor of the terms complain, where Jesus comes, he comes to reign, to reign and with no partial sway, all will bow and worship his name. So we preach this gospel of this perfect king promised from ages past his kingdom enjoyable now through the forgiveness of sin. This is the fullness of Advent. This is the real celebration of Christmas. A light really has dawned. So at this time, I, I want to recognize the fact that there are probably individuals in here who have not realized that this is what's true. Where you've, you've been skeptical of your need for saving and you've thought that all God came to offer was your forgiveness and you've wandered off after saying a prayer about something to forgive sin 
and, and you've, you've done your own thing, you've, you've not lived in the kingdom, goodness, no, you don't need God as your God, you're, you're your own God, but you knew you kind of messed some stuff up along the way, and so you maybe needed some rescue, and so you said a prayer one time, you came to an altar one time, and yeah, that's, that's, been, your, that's been your religious experience. Brothers and sisters, friend, if that's you, if, if and you, you've, you've missed the very heart of what God wants to accomplish in and through you. And I believe that he's beckoning you today to surrender your kingdom to his. Because let's be honest, your kingdom's pretty terrible. You tried to build it up, and all you have to do is, all you, all you can do is present a pile of rubbish. Trust me, I know. I'm not just asking you today to, to receive forgiveness of sins. I'm asking you to be back with the God who made you and be in relationship with him for the rest of your life because goodness, his kingdom is marked by peace, joy, love, and hope. So if that's you today, I want to, invite you to come up after the service. I want you to be prayed over. I want you to be able to ask your questions. But don't leave today if that's your reality. Also, I want to say that for those of you who are in this kingdom, let's preach this good news. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.